for most scoring models, 90 plus percent of the predictive power is concentrated in seven to maybe 12 variables. That UX feels less cumbersome and less challenging and intimidating if there is a baseline level of trust. Hello and welcome to VNext Remix by Veritran. This is your podcast to understand how digital technologies are disrupting traditional finance as we know it. I'm your host, Katie Janos-Small, the CEO and founder of Upana. And in each episode, I speak to leaders at the front lines of digital transformation to help you understand what's coming up. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Goldman to the show. Glenn has led and advised financial technology companies for more than 20 years. In the early 2000s, he led small business lender Can Capital to become a market-leading fintech platform. Later, he ran Credibly, where among other strategies to really grow the business, he established a data science function. Most recently, Glenn has taken his leadership experience to a range of companies as an advisor, and he has advised lending startups across the Americas, from Biz Capital in Brazil to Bien Para Bien in Mexico and Camino Financial in the United States. Now Glenn is a co-founder at Plural, which is a lending startup in Colombia. Glenn, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to VNext Remix. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Glenn, with all of this experience that you have in the digital credit industry, Tell me, how have you seen digital credit or credit scoring models as a whole evolve over the past 20 years? And maybe what's what stayed the same at the same time? So um, significant evolution. Um, and, and that evolution um, seems to be accelerating as each year goes by. Um, with that said, and we'll talk about what some of those um, kind of key items are. Um, one thing has not changed. Now, one thing has stayed the same, and that's the five C's of credit. Okay. Character, capacity, capital, collateral, and conditions. That has not changed. The five C's. What, the five okay. C's. What has changed, and it depends how you've been trained. Some folks learn seven C's, some ten C's. I like to keep it down to five. It's easier to remember. But what has changed is how we get there and the level of precision. So by way of example, um, Psychographic analysis driven by avatar snippet videos to measure willingness and intent to pay is just a very fancy way of measuring the first C, character. So it all comes back to the five Cs. But let's talk about how things have evolved, and, and we'll get into a little bit later on where you think it's going. Certainly the availability of data, both in terms of alternative data um, as well as open banking. Um, the breadth of data. Um, which is, you know, a blessing and a curse, being able to kind of navigate through um, the incredibly broad uh, amounts of data that are available to you both within your business and outside your business um, can be a challenge, but appropriately harnessed can be very powerful. The power and sophistication of modeling um, has never been stronger. Uh, what is now table stakes, um, if you are launching a credit-driven business, what you need to start with is something that companies five years ago only aspired to. So the table stakes have gotten much higher. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, data science as a bona fide profession 
outside of you know bio and pharma and insurance, you know, pointed directly at financial services, and I think fintech deserves a lot of credit for this, is a significant change and means that we have access to talent that only five or six or seven years ago we did not we did not have. Let me give you a quick example. Um, in, in Mexico, um, I'm working with an interesting, I think one of the top data scientists uh, in LATAM. He is a professor at UNAM, one of the top academic universities in Mexico. Um, he developed the data science curriculum there. He teaches two courses every semester. At the end of each semester, he hires the top two students to join his um, AI platform. It's brilliant. Five years ago, three years ago, that did not exist. And now we're seeing more and more of that type of dynamic emerging uh, in LATAM and in other emerging markets in addition to the US. Right. So much more institutional training available. Like you say, it's much more of a profession now than it ever was. That's exactly right. You know, in the early 2000s, what happened was anybody who was an analyst suddenly changed their, you know, their signature on their email to data scientist, but they weren't really data scientists. Today, we have the opportunity to hire bona fide data scientists and engineers and architects, and it's quite a joy to work with them. Right. So you talked, there is a lot that's changed, right? The availability of data and the way that we can analyze it. You mentioned that the five C's are the things that have, have stayed the same. Um, what what do you see as, I mean, is it those five C's or, or, or what is it that you see as like central, the most kind of critical piece when it comes to creating a, a predictive credit scoring model in the digital world? For me, I approach this um, as an operator, as an investor, and as an advisor, not a data scientist, but with deep admiration uh, for the craft. So my answer is a non-technical answer. Um, you know, what I see as being key to building highly predictive scoring models, um, first, if you're a startup, it's patience. It's all about the data um, and making sure you have a sufficient amount of data available to you or from third parties that are relevant in order to build models that are predictive. Uh, if you've been around for a while, um, it's about data hygiene and access to that data. Um, you know, when I think about data science, it's, I think it's important to really try to simplify it because it could be intimidating just um, in kind of what we call it. Um, and so if you, if you want to kind of create a simple framework, think about data science as being kind of four stages, maybe even four levels of pyramid. The first and most important is the ability to measure what happened, right? So that's all about building a strong architecture um, good data hygiene, so data is clean, it's accessible. Um, that is super, super important because you can't get to the next level unless you have that foundation. Level two is why did it happen? Can't answer that until you know what happened. Level three is predicting what is going to happen. So I know what happened. I know why it happened all in the past. Now I'm going to predict what's going to happen if I do these three things. And then lastly, the tip of the pyramid, um, kind of like Mac Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, love and self-actualization, is can we make it happen? How do we now use our data science tools to make these things happen? And I talk about this in the context of startups 
and ongoing platforms because more often than not, management teams don't prioritize building that foundation. You know, there's an old saying that um, when is the best time to plant a tree? You know, the answer is 20 years ago. Um, when's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. And so platforms today need to, in the most earliest of stages, um, even though there's very little reward in the early days, really focus on building that foundation. That's really interesting, Glenn. Another aspect to this, which I'm interested to get your views on, is how do you balance that need for extensive data with the demands of today's user who expects something really simple? You know, they've got the precedent of ordering an Uber in 30 seconds and it's on its way. Obviously, getting the information for a loan is something different, but you know, you need quite a lot of information to be able to make a decision on a loan. So how do you balance that need for lots of data with a really good user experience when you're building a, a digital lending product? So the, the answer to this is actually really quite simple. Um, and, and, and it comes down to four things. Um, number one is leveraging data aggregators and being smart about what you ask for. You know, with one or two fields of information, you can get access to bank statements. Bank statements right. um, access digitally can provide over 50 data points. With only two fields of information, that's incredibly powerful. Right. Number two, and maybe this is obvious, um, is to build trust, to create a trusting exchange of information. You know, that UX feels less cumbersome and less challenging and intimidating if there is a baseline level of trust. The third piece is recognize that for most scoring models, 90 plus percent of the predictive power is concentrated in seven to maybe 12 variables. And so let's not get too excited about optimizing for number of data points at the expense of all else when so much of the predictive power of a model is concentrated in so few variables. And then the last and perhaps most important, and I think the one that most people miss, is the ability to actively analyze your sales funnel so that you can equate changes in UX and user experience to unit economics. And I'll give you an example. Somebody from, my, from data science might show up or from credit might show up to a meeting and say, you know, if we ask three more questions, we get three more data points, we could reduce write-offs by 25 basis points. That sounds great, but not if conversion rates in the funnel drop by 300 basis points. And the reverse is true. If product shows up to a meeting and says, hey, you know, if we just don't ask these three questions, we're going to get people moving through the customer journey three times faster and our conversion rates will triple. And data science says and risk says, well, wait a second, that's going to increase our losses by 25 basis points. Just do the math. It's all fungible. If that higher conversion rate yields to greater net profitability, even after taking into consideration those higher write-offs, we should do that trade every day. So it's really about understanding your sales funnel and recognizing that your unit economics are all fungible. You can trade off one piece for another and optimize. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. So you're thinking about the, the overall um, profitability of the book of business uh, and how you can 
maybe move some little levers here and there to optimize that. Um, that, that that's a very interesting, interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, and in fact, Katie, what it gets to also is what's the culture of the organization? If it's sales-driven, is it credit and risk-driven, or is it properly balanced? If it's one or the other, then you won't likely have that kind of healthy debate. But if you've achieved some level of balance, there's always going to be some natural friction between those two functions. But if you've achieved a healthy balance and a healthy give and take, it will encourage that kind of conversation. That's really interesting. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, Glenn, is obviously most of your experience is in businesses that lend to other businesses, right? Like SME lenders, small business lenders. How do you see that as different? And how is that different as a, as a, from a fintech point of view um, compared, to, compared to lending to individuals? So, um, well, with, with the growing gig economy and side hustles, you know, the distinction that, you know, between SMEs and individuals is becoming a lot less clear. But, you know, that's frankly what makes it really exciting. You know, the reality is that SMEs don't typically have CFOs or finance teams. You know, in, in many ways, they, you know, they think like an individual or a consumer when they're making financial decisions for their business. So with that said, I sometimes think about SME risk scoring as consumer plus plus. You could look at the consumer elements, but there's a lot of rich information um, related to the business that drives some really interesting insights. There's more data, there's more behavioral elements, and I'll give you two examples. Um, in 2008, um, I remember talking to small business borrowers um, about you know how they felt about the economy, how they felt about their business, and how they're managing their financials. And it was very interesting to see because we watched a lot of lenders stop lending to small business owners who happened to default on the mortgage on their home. When we spoke to those small businesses, what we learned from them was, you know, the business is how they generate their livelihood. They are more than, you know, happy to let go of their home, move into a rental way, way before they would ever consider cratering their business. So maintaining the health of that business wow. was paramount. That opened up a huge lending opportunity for us at the time. And so that's a kind of an interesting behavioral element. Um, one other example, um, and, and, that, and that example just happened to be in the U.S. Another was just kind of leading into the pandemic. Um, and, and this was you know, some interesting projects I worked on both in, in Brazil and the U.S. Um, looking at creating what we called an SME resiliency score. So what did small business owners do to... Um, um, demonstrate resilience um, as a business owner to save their business. You know, how aggressively did they pursue government systems? You know, how well did they treat their vendors and their employees? How resilient were they? Um, and, you know, those kinds of behavioral elements, and, and we created ways of quantifying that and turning that into data, um, um, creates a very kind of rich kind of panoply um, that um, you don't have on the consumer side. So they're different. They're different. It's interesting, though, what you say about the 
going back to what you said at the start, right? The five C's, how they're critical, and, and the first of those five C's is character. Um, so I was about to ask you, well, how does character come into play in an SME? But I think that, that what you're talking about, the, the 2008 example, um, where, where people view their, maybe their business finances and their, and their personal finances quite differently, uh, and also the resilience score, right? Those are kind of examples. Would you say that those are examples of, of the character of the creditworthiness of an SME? Absolutely. And arguably the most difficult to measure, but yes. Yeah, I bet they're difficult to measure. Um, Glenn, uh, looking looking ahead, um, seems like we've got some interesting economic times ahead of us. Um, we've seen, as you mentioned over the last 20 years, like massive changes in the in the data science landscape. But how do you see the way fintechs lend and the way that fintechs can lend and more broadly, the, I guess, the, the data science universe? How do you see that evolving over the next um, five to ten years. What's what's ahead? I would suggest that we are, you know, going through a period of enlightenment, um, and, and oftentimes that's brought on by challenge, stress, and duress. Um, and as as you said, you know, the interesting economic times create a certain level of that. Um, but there's, I think, a number of kind of dynamics at play. Number one is kind of the awareness of the importance of culture. Uh, and balance. What I mentioned earlier about kind of a classic, you know, risk versus sales mentality, and the importance of maintaining a balance between the two. Um, the second is an understanding of what data science is and is not. Um, I think people uh, at all levels of platforms uh, are now recognizing more and more that it's not this big scary thing. It's a whole bunch of smart people sitting over in the corner that we're afraid to talk to. You know, we, we talked about the four stages. It's very simple. What happened? Why did it happen? What's going to happen? And how do we make it happen? Um, it's understanding uh, the ability to impact all aspects of your business, not just credit risk. Um, I think that is a, a wide open area. Uh, you know, continued focus on alternative data um, while recognizing that it's all about um, the five C's. Um, and then the last two um, is smarter hiring. And I think it's important that all companies have a data-driven culture, you know, that there is a single source of truth. And one of the things that I've always done in the businesses that I have built or advised is to talk about that data science-driven culture. And what that means is not everybody you hire has to be, or even should be a data scientist, but rather everybody you hire should be a good consumer uh, of data science resources. That's absolutely critical. How can I use data science to make my job easier, better, faster, stronger? And then I guess the last thing I would say is, and we've touched on this a few times, uh, what's ahead within credit itself? I think the next frontier with the most upside is the ability to measure character, uh, specifically intent and willingness to pay. Sometime down the road, if the economy shifts, if that consumer or small business owner faces some type of duress or challenge, how will they behave then? That's where I think there's a huge amount of upside and uh, what I think is the most exciting aspect you know, of the future of what's ahead. That's kind of a... Um 
Is that a peripheral use case though? Like the what if scenario, if things go bad, or is that something that's going to make a meaningful difference to a um, to a book of business? I, I think it's meaningful, and, and, and the reason why I say that um, is, um, you know, uh, there is so much data that's available. Um, there are so many tools, models, talent available that the difference between an amazing scoring model a really good scoring model and a pretty good scoring model used to be hundreds and hundreds of basis points. I think it's now, you know, probably measured in basis points or tens of basis points. Um, and so we've done a good job of measuring ability to pay. I don't believe we've done a great job of measuring willingness. And when the economy goes sideways, and when borrowers face duress, um, how they behave could have a material impact, especially with an economy going sideways, will have a material impact on how that portfolio performs. And the one characteristic that is most difficult to measure is that character. What will they do yeah. when times are tough? So I think it has a significant uh, potential impact. Fascinating. All right, Glenn, it's time for us to move to the lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Which book are you reading right now? Uh, I went back and I'm reading again, Transcendental Meditation, The Essential Teachings. I've been meditating now for six years and looking to bring mindfulness and presence and balance and compassion to all aspects of my life. Amazing, amazing. What's the best piece of professional advice you've received? Don't expect what you don't inspect. Basically, focus on the details. Don't expect what you don't inspect. Focus on the details, ask all the right questions. Don't assume anything is gonna take care of itself. Cool, thank you. Um, Glenn, what is the app that you use most? YouTube Music, hands down. Right. When will we stop using cash? Well, it depends who and where. Um, you know, I have three sons, you know, in their 20s. Um, I don't think any of them have carried cash for the last three or four years. Um, and I think all of those who come after them, um, yeah, it's the same. In LATAM, I think we're about 10 years away. Um, I think FinTech will play a major role, as will governments and regulators, you know, benefit from increased tax revenue and the social and economic good of access and credit. Um, but here in the U.S., I think uh, we're already there. And last question, who else do you recommend that we invite onto the show? Two people come to mind. Cristiano Roca at Biz Capital in Brazil. Mm -hmm. They've built an amazing business there. Um, and he is one of the most kind of intrepid, you know, explorers of cutting edge data um, and technology, you know, that knows no geographical bounds. The other would be Sean Salas uh, at Camino Financial, who's built, you know, this incredible business. They've really cracked the code on how to use AI uh, to serve um, black and brown communities in the U.S. Um, and the story of the creation of that business is one of the most inspiring I've ever heard. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for those recommendations. And Glenn, thank you so much for your time joining us on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise, Katie. Thank you. 
and thank you for tuning in to this new series of V-Next Remix. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and turn on notifications to be the first to hear the next episode. And don't forget this year V-Next Remix is also being produced in Spanish. The next episode will be in Español and after that we'll be back in English with more V-Next Remix insights.